Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Tom Druitt. Tom is the founder and managing director of The Big Lemon, a sustainable transport social enterprise in Brighton and Hove, East Sussex, running the UK's first solar-powered electric buses. Tom, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Scott. Nice to be here. It's a lovely day forward. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us, Tom. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we look at that word leader to begin with, just in isolation for a second, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a really good question. I think <clears throat> leadership is often uh, misunderstood and it's important to understate it. Uh, for me, leadership is about having a strong vision and being able to communicate that vision to uh, motivate a team and you know maybe a wider community to uh, essentially follow you to your vision. Um, it's you know it's it's quite uh, it, it is quite a simple concept, but it has a huge number of ramifications. It certainly does. And if we think about your sort of personal leadership model, if you will, the approach that you take um, behind the scenes with the big lemon, how would you describe that, as it were? Yeah, it's an interesting one because our leadership style at the big lemon is very uh, much um, based around the community and Mm. really, in a way, trying to take our you know, work in partnership with the community and and empower the community to uh, give us a steer on what they want and what services we can provide and what uh, innovations they want to see in the future. Um, so it's very collaborative style of leadership. It's very much about engagement, about listening, and ultimately... Um, it, it's about encapsulating where our community wants uh, to see transport uh, go in the future. You know, what kind of transport do we need as a community? Uh, what impact uh, do we want our transport to have on our community, on our environment, and so on? So uh, we've done a, a lot of public engagement in terms of public meetings, um, obviously all the, the social stuff that everyone does nowadays, but um, really trying to uh, reach as much uh, of our community as possible and engage them in many different ways. So, for example, we have uh, passengers on our buses who are, have a direct relationship with our services, uh, but also we have uh, investors locally. Uh, it was very... Um, we, you know, we want. We're very keen on um, living our values, and I think uh, that is a, a, a really fundamental pillar of leadership. Um, so, in, rather than getting loans from commercial banks to buy our buses, we went out to our community and uh, asked them to invest in our buses, 
And as a result, we've uh, bought um, brand new electric buses, which we're powering from solar energy on the roof of the bus depot, which the which was also um, kind of part paid for by a uh, crowdfunding scheme um, with the local community. So it's very much about engaging, living your values, and um, really uh, kind of trailblazing the the way that your community wants to see public transport uh, uh, in the future. And sustainability is something that yeah. really has come to the fore in the context of the current climate, hasn't it, with the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic? Of course, it was very much at the forefront of our minds and in recent government policy as well with the new ambitious environment bill, carbon neutral by 2050, of course. But the fact yeah. that we're working remotely so often at this point in time, it's raised questions as to our working practices. Do people need to be commuting every day into work and essentially damaging the environment further? Um, if we sort of fast forward two years and we're in a world where COVID-19 is no longer an issue at that stage, do you think that office work will be fully back in vogue or will more and more people be working from home on a personal basis, do you think? Uh, that's a very good question, and it's, um, I don't think it's quite as simple as saying it's going to be one or the other. Uh, I think the even if COVID hopefully one day becomes uh, a distant memory, um, I think it has fundamentally changed a lot of things that will kind of be permanent changes. So, yes, not only have people realised that they can easily work from home, they've also... Uh, in many cases, been given the infrastructure to do it. So, uh, for example, my a friend of mine works in a call centre and um, they used to all have to go in the office. But obviously, when COVID happened, uh, the, the his employer um, came around the house and dropped off all the tech so that he could still work, but from his bedroom. So... Um, it's you know all of that infrastructure is now in place, and I think a lot of firms will be looking to cut costs and so on uh, after COVID to try and re- repair their balance sheets and, and get back into business. Um, and they'll be looking at offloading offices and you know reducing space and and uh, you know taking advantage of the fact that a lot of people have got used to working from home. However, I don't think it's going to just stop people going to the office. We're still a very social species. We need uh, to bounce ideas off people. You know, Zoom and Skype and so on are very useful in many ways, but there's nothing quite like a uh, you know face-to-face conversation in, in certain circumstances. So uh, I think the way we work will will change. Uh, We'll, we'll, there'll be lasting changes to the way we work, but it, it's not as simple as saying that everyone will be working from home because because they won't be, and and many jobs can't be done from home. Um, driving the bus, for example, uh, but the, I think the way that uh, we work in future and the way that we live in future, I think COVID has also taught us that um, you know the things that we thought were important may not be as important as we thought they were and there, there are other things that we've realized that are more important um you know mainly around family and neighbors and 
I mean, especially uh, kind of really um, inspired by all the neighbourly action that's going on at the moment, the way that uh, all the mutual mm. aid groups popped up everywhere and everyone's now in a WhatsApp group with, with their neighbours in the street. And um, this, this, this kind of, I think it's really uh, made us think more about our place in our community. And that, I'm hoping, will be a lasting change. Let's certainly hope so for sure, because that is one of the positive things to really come out of this quite difficult and quite tragic time, as is the uh, renewed focus on mental health and well-being for that matter as well. Um, For yourself, um, how has it been sort of adapting to the challenges that COVID-19 has brought about um, as a business? Um, Have you had to adapt to showing leadership from a distance and working a little bit more remotely, or has it been sort of business as usual a little bit more so? Um, it's a it's a good question because um, we've obviously you can't drive buses remotely, um, so we've not been in a position where uh, you know a lot of our uh, most of our staff can't work from home. However, uh, a number can. Um, our office team have been working from home. Uh, our we've had um, our office phone number on diver to. Um, Teams mobiles at home, and um, uh, and our drivers have a number of them have been on furlough, and uh, some are still working. So we're running a reduced service, and uh, that obviously you know is a bit easier in one way, but um, financially has been very challenging because we saw uh, during the when when lockdown was announced suddenly 90% of our passengers uh, disappeared, um, which was a good thing. That was the right thing. They were you know, doing what they were told and staying at home. And the ones that were still on the buses were almost all um, key workers working at the hospital or um, you know, in, in schools or yeah, whatever it was. But um, we do, we serve, uh, we serve the biggest hospital in Brighton and, so a lot of our services were very important for key workers. And I think um, you know, I thought a lot about our approach and the importance of showing leadership when the crisis broke out. And I think uh, you know, it's really important in these kind of situations to give confidence to your staff team, first of all, that, that you've you know, got their, their backs essentially, but uh, you know, you're not going to ask them to do anything dangerous or stupid. Mm. And essentially uh, there's no, there's no price on people's safety and well-being. And uh, so we set ourselves three uh, main goals right from the beginning that our primary focus is to make sure that our staff and our passengers are safe. Our secondary uh, the second goal is to maintain as much of a service that we safe, uh, that we safely can do for as long as possible for our key workers. And thirdly, um, we we obviously uh, yeah we had to uh, look after our finances as well because mm. uh, yeah it's very it's potentially in a very precarious state. 
um, uh, you know, after a crisis like this. But we we specified that our third goal was to ensure the financial health of the organisation, so that everyone still had a job at the end of it, and our passengers still had their bus service. So I think just specifying all of that very clearly to people from the outset uh, is important because it, it it shows people what your priorities are, what which direction you're going, um, and then pretty much every other decision that you take after that is made in the context of those three priorities so that people know that uh, they're being looked after, they're going to be safe, we've, we've, we're conscious of the importance of their long-term employment and their long-term bus service. And, um, and yeah, I think that has really helped us get through the crisis. Um, our staff have done an amazing job over the last few months. Our passengers have been incredibly supportive and very appreciative of our efforts. And um, we're looking forward to, you know, gradually things um, becoming a bit more normal in the coming months, hopefully. And um, we're also very, uh, very conscious that bus services aren't going to be the same once we're back to normal. Um, there's a lot of work to do, obviously, to make sure that buses are safe and that um, we can maintain social distancing on the buses. Uh, we've got um, extra cleaning regimes. And um, we're also, obviously, from last week, um, masks are now compulsory on public transport. And we've uh, put a supply of masks in each vehicle so that any passenger that gets on without a mask can just take a mask and um, it's, yeah, it's not a drama. So I think all of these things just, you know, it's just giving people confidence that, that you know, giving our staff team confidence that we, we've got their backs, giving our passengers confidence that we're looking after them and we'll, we'll do our best to uh, keep their services going in, in the best way for as long as possible. And if we think about your real uh, plans for the next 12 months in getting through the pandemic and adjusting to the new normal, what do you envision for yourself in the Big Lemon and what do you really hope to achieve in the future as we look to the long term? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, I, and obviously we were already very uh, conscious of the future challenges around climate change, around air quality, around uh, mobility and congested cities, and so on. So um, back in 2017, we set ourselves a vision for 2030 that we would work towards. And, and we, um, we, we set ourselves our, our 2030 vision, which is that Every community in the UK has access to affordable, sustainable transport using zero emission vehicles powered by renewable energy and owned by the local community. And the reason we did this is really to to communicate our goal very clearly, um, obviously to our community and our um, staff team, 
but also to to ourselves to hold us to account to, to actually write it down, publish it, and then uh, each year at our AGM we uh, we look at how you know what progress we're making towards it. So obviously, public transport is going to be uh, different in the future. Um, we yeah, before COVID, obviously, we didn't expect COVID to happen. But now that it has, um, the way people travel will be different. And so we've done a lot of work over the last few weeks to try and in, imagine, envisage what uh, people's transport needs will be in the next five to ten years. Um, it was already very, very uh, obvious that they, that we needed to find more sustainable ways of uh, transporting people very quickly and also um, do more to alleviate congestion and, and air quality, uh, poor air quality in cities. So we've, uh, so uh, that's why we've been focusing on um, zero emissions buses uh, powered by renewable energy. But I think also the element of community ownership is very important because it engages your community in the project and it gives everyone a stake in in the success of it and i think it's going to be really fascinating just to see how that vision does pan out over the course of the uh, the next 10 years and although of course it would be quite a while to wait um looking to see if it uh, does indeed come to pass i think it would be fantastic if uh, before then perhaps in the next uh, few months we could catch up just to see how things are getting on in terms of the short term economic recovery and things behind the scenes at the business as well and see just how things are getting along paving the way toward that long term vision uh, yeah, that sounds wonderful. Um, I think regular check-ins are, are really important to, to make sure that you're you're on track and and that everyone you you're always going to need to be uh, flexible and and work with the uh, the uh, environment that you're you know, that you're in. Obviously, we didn't expect COVID to happen, but it's happened, so we need to take that into account into account. And um, as a result, we've uh, really focused on proper social distancing on the buses and the masks and things that I mentioned earlier, so that people have confidence to use public transport in the future. Because I think that's the big thing that uh, that we've found over the last few weeks is that you know people have been told by the government not to use public transport, which I don't think, incidentally, was terribly helpful because um, what really we should have been telling people is uh, this is what we're doing to make public transport safe. Um, And then we can give people the confidence that uh, they can use our buses and uh, we can engage them in the conversation of, you know, what are their travel needs going to be over the coming years and what does public transport look like in 2030s what does mobility look like what do our cities look like and and also our rural communities you know if we're not careful our rural communities will end up being totally cut off but uh one thing we you know we we all know the importance of um ensuring people can use local services ensuring that people can maintain their independence for as long as possible and ensuring that people aren't isolated 
So uh, the, there are many, many challenges, but we're uh, very keen. You know, I think the what what we bring to the table is is that finger on the pulse in our community and constantly talking to people, constantly trying to understand what the needs are in the community and how we can um, deliver a service that uh, that caters for those needs. And it's going to be really interesting to see just how that pans out for sure, uh, Tom. And, you know, given how um, insightful it's been discussing this with you today it would be a real pleasure as i said to have you back on in future and until we do touch base again on the program do please take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet as we well know even though we're starting to see things reverting to some form of normality thank you scott it's been nice talking to you and uh, yes i'd love to uh, come again and tell you how we're progressing in future months it's been a real pleasure tom thank you ever so much for your time that was Tom Druitt, um, the founder and managing director of the Big Lemon speaking there. And coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff. That is coming up next. We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He, um, he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time at 
years, I guess, he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you you just think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that caliber can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it peters i think probably well i was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players i did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of england and west ham and martin peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as martin's concerned i think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alfred Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people 
and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know, in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second, I think... Mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that I'll show. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very 
I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. It's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that—I've uh, been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, to just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but no, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well, so it did... Uh, um, and again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and, uh, and Stoke. 
and of course into the England fans who um, I, I think probably it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's have a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think 
that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. Yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good, good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't, and when, it, when you put those, those questions and how you categorize those, I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word is team. team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, Together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. If you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.